Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. So we're reading from all of Revelation chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what's written in it, because the time is near. John To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But then he placed his right hand on me and said, 
Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now, look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So hear the word of the Lord. Thanks. Let's pray, friends. Lord, what a powerful message. Vision was given to John. and We pray that you might... uh, Help us to catch a glimpse of that vision in the midst of our own circumstances this day. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, Jake's introduced our theme of uh, pressures facing the people of John's time facing our time, but I wonder what pressures you're under and what you do with the pressures you face when you are under them. What do you do when the odds are stacked against you? You might wake up in week 12 and all those books you needed to read before your final exams are still sitting neatly on the shelf. In fact, they're sitting too neatly on the shelf and you feel sick in the stomach. How am I going to fit all these things into the few days before the deadline is due? Help. But, of course, sometimes the pressure is not what we inflict upon ourselves but it's what's inflicted upon us including, of course, the pressure of being a believer in Jesus in a world that denies him. Uh, This week I've been thinking and praying a lot for one of our graduates. Uh, This man is an Anglican minister. He was here at Ridley maybe eight or ten years ago, uh, ordained the Anglican church now as a minister of a church in the eastern suburbs, and his children attend a private school in the eastern suburbs. And because he'd previously had a job in the corporate world, he was approached by the school that his children are at to chair its board. Pretty important, big job, a lot of work. But he thought, here's an opportunity to serve the church school and hopefully be a witness for Christ in this school. I'll try and juggle it with all the other responsibilities I've got, but here it is. Except this week, when the denomination that runs this particular school has been pilloried in the press because of its views on human sexuality. So here's one of our graduates, somebody who was just like you a few years ago sitting in these very pews, one of our graduates suddenly finding himself in the firing line. How's he going to lead the school board over this time? What will he say as chair of the board when journalists from The Age and The Herald Sun and other TV places, who knows what, contact him and ask him to respond to the outrageous idea that a church school might have a view different from society on a moral issue. What's he going to do in this situation? Does he resign? Does he just keep his head down and go back to his church? Or does he somehow try and stay at this intersection of the world and the church? It's challenging. Now, our passage today is written in a time of pressure for the church. 
We see this very much in verse 9. Look at that. I, John, your brother and companion, where in the suffering and the kingdom and, and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island. Why? Because of the word of God that he's been preaching and the testimony of Jesus that he's been giving. He's writing in a time of pressure and persecution. He's been exiled for his faith, and he knows that although it's tough now, things are going to get tougher. Look back at verse 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So it's hard now, and as you read Revelation, those of you who I think are studying the New Testament now will see, more is going to be unveiled of the pressures facing the church. It's bad now and it's going to get worse, says John. And he's writing this to encourage his readers to keep on going in spite of the pressures they're facing. He describes himself as their brother and their companion. That's the idea of someone who walks alongside, someone who partakes, your, their brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours. Yes, we have the kingdom of God, praise the Lord. But being part of the kingdom means you have to part also accept the sufferings that are also part of the kingdom. We are fellow companions in the suffering and the kingdom and therefore we're going to be companions in the need to patiently endure what's going on. We need to endure and we need to do it with patience because it might take a bit longer than we thought it might take. We need to have patient endurance. Now, the word for suffering there in verse 9 uh, is the word thlipsis, which means pressures. Those things that rub against us and leave us confined, hemmed in, without any means of escape. And that, of course, was the re reality for John on the tiny island of Patmos. A few years ago, I was part of a study tour of Turkey, Greece and Rome for students at Ridley, and we visited the island of Patmos. Do we have a picture of the island of Patmos? There it is. Fantastic. The cruise liner came in on a wonderful sunny day. We got off the ship as a group and we walked, jumped into taxis and got to the top to saw the spectacular views and we saw the cave where John had his revelation. It's, you know, it's a bit damp and dank and so forth, but there's lots of lamps and sorts of things where people are praying and so forth. So we had a time there reflecting and then we walked down the hill through the olive groves. We happened to stumble across some little, lovely little Greek cafes. So we had some Greek coffee, some baklava, and then we went back on the ship. The hard work of being a lecturer at Ridley College. <laughs> but for John it was no time of pleasure but of pressure. He's exiled on the orders of the Roman Emperor Domitian. Patmos is a place of no escape. It's a prison island. And yet in this place of suffering, John is given a vision of Jesus. In the midst of the pressures, the confinement, being hemmed in, he sees the risen and ascended Jesus in all his glory and splendour and majesty. 
John Stott, in his little commentary on Revelation, wrote this. A church with its back against the wall, fighting for survival, needs more than moral exhortation and pious entreaty. It must see Christ. It must see Christ. Our eyes must be fixed on Jesus. So here's a vision of Jesus for us today. Whatever the pressures we may be facing, big or small, a vision of Jesus to help us patiently endure. So notice uh, three things in this passage. Firstly, the presence of Jesus with his people. Look at verse 10. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. So I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and when I turned around I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. The surprise in this is that we might have expected Jesus to have seen a vision of Jesus in all his glory, first of all, but what he first sees is Jesus with his people amongst the lampstands, amongst the churches. In the midst of their suffering, this is where Jesus is found. So often, we have a, we, we, so often we, we, we feel like uh, God is, is a long way away, uh, you know, he's up there in heaven, but actually he's with us wherever we are. John is given a vision for the church to say that God is not just in heaven away from his people, pulling the, pulling, making the world work, but he's here amongst us and he knows what we're going through. Read ahead to chapters 2 and 3. And you'll see in each of the letters to the seven churches, the risen Christ tells the church, I see what's going on. To the church in Ephesus, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. To the church in Smyrna, I know your afflictions, your poverty. You're making it hard to make ends meet. The church in Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet I know that you are remaining true to my name. We may think that evil and suffering and persecution always has the upper hand, but Jesus' words through John reminds his people that that's not the case. We have a God who is walking amongst the lampstands. I hope that's an encouragement to you as you prepare to serve the church currently or in the future. For consider the churches listed by John. Now you can sort of understand Jesus being with the people of Ephesus. It was a big and important city. It still is. It's an ancient city. Ruins there. Thousands of tourists flocked to Ephesus. Yeah, Jesus would go there. Or you can imagine him maybe spending time with the church in Laodicea with its natural mineral springs. Have you seen them? cascading down the hill, absolutely beautiful, a photo opportunity. Everyone wants to get their photo taken there. But Jesus isn't a tourist just visiting the impressive places. He's with his churches no matter where they are, no matter how big they are, no matter how important they are. He's with them in the midst 
of the precious. He's with your church, friends who are serving in southeast Melbourne amongst the Iranian congregation. He's there. He's with you as a youth worker in Sunshine. He's with you, the little church in Oyen. Graham, the other day, you described Oyen. What did you say Oyen was? Not a lot happening in Oyen. He's with the saints in Oyen. He knows what is going on with the saints in Oyen. As a minister, I've served in some really big churches, some popular, well-known churches. But it's nice to serve in a church like that. I've also served in some smaller little clunky churches, actually. And the current church I'm in is a bit clunky. We haven't had a minister for 15 months. We're wondering, Lord, what on earth is going? Why doesn't someone want to come to our church? But Jesus is saying, I am with the lampstands. I've got them in my hand. I'm walking amongst you. I am present with my people. Take comfort. Be sure, be assured of that. So first of all, a vision of Jesus with his people. Secondly, a vision of the power of Jesus. First, the presence of Jesus. Now it's the power of Jesus for his people. He's with his people, but he's also for his people. Verse 12, I turned around, we saw that before, to see the voice that was speaking. I saw the seven golden lampstands. And then amongst the lampstands, there's there's the Son of Man, someone like a Son of Man at least, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair in his head is white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand there's seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Can you picture that? not easy really when you think about it. I remember as a young Christian trying to actually draw a picture of it and look really weird. But other people have done it. Let's look at one. So that's sort of a, go the one, the one before it. That's sort of like you might expect, a nice lovely Jesus with the lampstands. But this one, let me grab me the next, that one there, that's, that's a sort of a, a pretty freaky sort of drawing of what some hand is. Andrew Mine, you've got drawings like that. I presume you're showing your class today. You're coming to chapel, this is okay, thank you. thank you so much. Uh, now, of course, out of all the ideas for, uh, that is, are described in these verses, uh, they come from different parts of the Old Testament, trying to describe Jesus in his power and splendour of majesty. So verse 13, the, the robes, he's, he's got a robe reaching down to his feet. It's the idea of investiture where garments of honour are placed on someone who's achieved a great deed. I guess when you look at, if you see the coronation of King Charles, people dressed in all their elaborate robes to show there's a sense of power and, uh, and, and achievement. Verse 14, uh, the same words are used of the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool, and in Daniel 7, and God's throne is blazing with fire and its wheels all ablaze. But this is a description of Jesus, the risen ascent of Jesus. Verse 15, his feet are like bronze glowing in a furnace, his voice like the sound of rushing waters. Uh, If you've ever been near a huge waterfall, imagine there's a sense the water fills the whole space. You can barely hear yourself speak and hears Jesus booming his voice into the world. One commentator writes, 
hears the voice of sovereign power, the voice of supreme power, the very voice which one day will command the dead to come forth from the graves. This is the voice that is booming out. And in his hand he holds the seven stars and there's the sharp double-edged sword, perhaps the word of judgment against the nations, but perhaps also against the church. What we see here is God is drawing back the curtain for us to see the reality of what is actually happening in the church. Normally, what we can see is what we can see. And we, we, we think what we see is um, who wins in the world, those with the biggest armies, those with the biggest weapons. In John's day, it was the Romans. He calls them the beasts and the dragon in the book of Revelation. It seems they are in control. But here the curtain is drawn back and we can see something more real, the one who is really powerful. What is he described in verse 5? His Jesus is described as the faithful witness, the one who witnessed to God even unto death. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Here is Jesus in all his power who has no rivals. No one can overcome him. Many years ago, I started, when I started, after I started high school, my family moved from the lovely rural city of Wagga in New South Wales to a fairly rough part of Sydney in the western suburbs. I don't know if you know the western suburbs of Sydney, but uh, it's not easy, an easy place to, to live, but that's where we moved to. Dad was a bank manager and someone needed to run the bank in that part of the world. And two things made it particularly hard for me as a self-conscious teenager going to a local high school in the area. One, we moved not in the beginning of the year, so I could just be part of the new newbies, but I was like in the middle of the year, so I was sort of stood out. And two, I was reasonably bright and smart kids were not tolerated at that school. Being smart was a bad thing, you know. But I had one thing going for me at that school, my cousin Alan. Alan was known as Little Alan, Little Al, Lal. Not because he was big and therefore they called him Little, because sometimes Australians do that, but because he was little. Yet despite this, or perhaps the course of this, he was the best street fighter in the town. <laughs> and Little Al, my cousin, took me under my, his wing and every day we went to the playground, he'd hang out with me, and anybody who tried to have a go at me or bully me would meet the glaring eyes of little Al and they'd retreat. They knew who would win any fight. Friends, in Jesus we have one whom the world cannot beat. The world cannot overcome him. He won the fight with sin and death and evil. His eyes are scanning the world. And his glaring ultimately, his glare will ultimately meet any tyrant who dares to try to match him. Whether it's tyrants who try to invade borders in Europe or might invade places in Asia, whatever it is, he is in control. He's described a number of times as the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, one who was there at the very beginning and one will be there to the very end and he knows everything that goes on in between the beginning and the end. Nothing surprises Jesus, not invading superpowers, not global pandemics, not changes in society that put pressure upon the church. Nothing is able to get ahead of him or to catch him out. 
And John calls us to patiently endure because we know what the end will be. So a vision of the power of Jesus for his people and finally a vision of the promise of Jesus to his people. Look at these beautiful words of promise in verses 17 to 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Here's this picture of the risen Christ in all his power and splendour. Yet somehow, with, even with seven stars in his right hand, he bends down and places his hands on John and reassures John of what he's done for him and for the church. And to John, stuck in prison, locked behind the prison doors, he says, actually, I hold the keys of, of death and Hades. They might think they hold the keys, but I've got them firmly in my grasp. There's nothing for you to fear. Now, fear, of course, is a terrible thing. In the midst of pressures, it can overpower us. We can become immobilised with fear and unable to move. But John, Jesus tells John, and he tells us today, no matter what your situation you're facing, he says, do not be afraid. Do not fear that which is currently immobilising you, whatever it might be. For even though the world may think it has the power to overcome you, I have the power to overcome them. I am the eternal one. I am the conqueror of death. I will never let my people go. Let me conclude with a story of John's most famous disciple. This John's most famous disciple. John, of course, was here in Patmos, but he went back to Ephesus as the leader there, and one of his disciples was a guy called Polycarp who became the bishop of one of those seven churches called Smyrna. And in the year 155 AD, a persecution broke out in the area of Smyrna, and this disciple of John who had this vision was arrested and brought before the local people who wanted his blood. Burn him alive, they said. He's been preaching about Jesus. Put him away. And this is what we read of his martyrdom. Now, as Polycarp was entering the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven, a bit like, you know, John. And the voice from heaven said to Polycarp, be strong and show yourself a man, O Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him, the account goes on, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp had been taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him, are you Polycarp? And on confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect for your old age, Polycarp. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, away with the atheists. They called the Christians the atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen there in the stadium, waves his hands towards them. And with groans, he looked to heaven and said, yes, away with the atheists. 
Then the proconsul urging him and saying, swear, I'll have you set at liberty if you do so, reproach Christ. Polycarp declared these famous words. Eighty and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How can I then blaspheme my king and my saviour? The account goes on to say that Polycarp didn't actually die from the flames but eventually was killed with a sword by one of the guards. Friends, how do you manage pressure? What do you do when the chips are down and the odds are stacked up against you? The answer, of course, is lift up your eyes to have a vision for Jesus as John did, as Polycarp did, and see Christ as he actually is, the one whose presence is with us, whose power is for us, and whose promise is given to us right today here in this place. Do not fear. Let's pray. We take a moment just to bring before the Lord things that we're perhaps stuck on, that we're concerned about, that challenge us and we're a bit fearful of. Today is a day to bring it to Jesus. We hear Jesus say to us, do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I'm alive and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Lord, help these, this promise be true to us today and all our days. Amen. Amen.